Welcome to episode 114 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. For you, there's nothing in this world I wouldn't do. Hey, brother. Hey, oh. How are you on this lovely, rainy November? Oh, December. December day. I can't even get my calendar. I'm stoked. Right. I'm stoked yeah. because we got questions. We do have questions. We've got excellent questions this week. We love question casts. But before we get to that, we've also got some recommendations and some other exciting things going on, right? We do. So I'm going to start off, kick us off with a little recommendation. So I actually kind of stumbled on this set of lectures, um, which is available on Sermon Audio, and I'll put the link in the show notes. For real, I will. Um, but it was the um, the Southern California Reformed Baptist Pastors Conference of 2018, which was hosted at Trinity Reformed Baptist Church in La Miranda, California. And they're, they're, this is like a technical academic conference for Reformed Baptist pastors. And it was um, James Renahan, J.V. Fesco from Westminster, California, James Dolezal. Um, and it was on Providence. And it's seven sessions. And it's probably one of the best technical explanations of Providence. Um, and it's rooted in the primarily the London Baptist Confession, but there's not a lot of significant differences with the Westminster. But it, it was just super, super good. And James Dolezal is amazing, but John Fesco does an amazing couple lectures. James Renahan does an awesome lecture. Um, it's super good. So I'll put that in there. If if I don't, or if you don't want to go to the website to find it, if you go to Sermon Audio and search for Trinity Reformed Baptist, uh, which is Samuel Renahan's church, you should be able to find it in their series. And it's uh, it's abbreviated SCRB. PC 2018. It's wicked, wicked good. You seriously should go check it out. You had me at technical, reformed, and Baptist. <laughs> I bet I did. That's all it took. Not only that, but what other podcast where you hear somebody say, I just happened to stumble yeah. on some amazing lectures. Yeah. Yeah. I Cause I have John Fesco in my um, sermon feed. Like I have his sermon audio feed in my podcast and he hardly ever updates cause he's not like an active well, he might be an active pastor, but wherever he is, he's not on Sermon Audio. But every once in a while, he'll do like a guest lecture at another church that is on Sermon Audio. And so he pops up and he just popped up and I was like, oh, man. So I went and looked. It was just amazing. It's so, so good. And it it was one of those times where it's like you think you've kind of got a grip on divine providence. Like you, you think you've got a grip on the theology of it. And then right. all of a sudden someone explains it in another way. And it's just like, it's like when you're, I've never really done much mountain climbing, but it's like if you're climbing a mountain and you think you're coming to the summit um, and then you come around like a ledge and it opens up to a vista and all of a sudden it's like this beautiful, glorious view, but then you realize like there's more to climb. That's what right. I felt like listening. And I'm not even all the way done with it, but it's, it's really, really, really good. That's a pretty good metaphor, actually, where you're climbing and there's like a little gap in the trees and you're yeah. like, this is so beautiful up here. Yeah. And then you keep walking you're like, oh man, that view is, doesn't even compare to where exactly. I'm at the top. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure I didn't make up that, that analogy on my own. I think I probably stole it from someone. Timestamp, we're copywriting it right now. <laughs> so Jesse, do you have anything to recommend? Yeah. What I want to recommend is a place to get some really solid apparel. So if mm -hmm. you go to this website called rootedapparels.com, you can get all kinds of amazing Reformed Brotherhood stuff. 
And this is our, one of our brothers from the network who runs this um, this website and this, this shop. It's fantastic stuff. And I'm particularly fond of the Reform Brotherhood 15-ounce mug. Yes. Which is a beast of a mug. Like it's this great. is the mug you want to drink your coffee in. And if you've ever thought to yourself, you know what? I would really like to look at Jesse and Tony's faces <laughs> while I drink my hot morning beverage. Then your prayers have been answered because rootedapparels.com has the mug for you. And, and like I've said before, it seriously this is a great mug because if you are a dude and I will be the first to admit that I have kind of girlish hands, like my <laughs> ring size, I'm just going to throw this out there for everybody. My ring size is seven and a half. Wow. You do have tiny hands. I'm, I'm a witness <laughs> to this, but I didn't realize they were that tiny. Seven and a half is a pretty small ring. We're getting real. Yeah. Yes. So it's like I, that Burger King commercial with the guy with the tiny hands. Have you seen that commercial? Yes. That is he basically can't eat the Whopper because he has baby hands. Yep. I've, I really identify with that guy. So the thing about this is even though my hands are small, I'm always complaining. Like I've said before that I can never get my hand, like all my fingers fully in a mug and it's super uncomfortable to handle. No more fear of that. This handle is beefy. It's, it gives you plenty of room, but uh, there's also reform brotherhood hoodies. There's a tumbler, there's men's and women's t-shirts. So by buying any one of these items, not only are you getting something that's really super fun, you're supporting our little podcast and you're supporting uh, this, our brother's work too on his site. So you can go yeah. to reform, rootedapparels.com or reformbrotherhood.com and we have a link on yeah. our website as well. So I have the Tumblr at work. Um, so the, the guy who runs this website, every time he wants to throw out like a new product, he sends Jesse and me a sample. And so I have all this Reform Brotherhood stuff, which is awesome. But sometimes it's a little bit awkward because my face is plastered all over it. But I was at work and I was in a meeting and I was drinking out of this Tumblr. And somebody went, oh, look, you have your face on that mug. And I kind of chuckled. He goes, but you have so much more hair in there than you do. And he was looking at your face and thought it was mine. I was like, oh, that's my brother-in-law. And he's like, oh. And then I took my hand away and I was like, but I am on this mug. So it was a funny story. That's not the first time this has happened, right? It's not. No, I mean, you heard, you heard when Ashley looked at a picture that you were in and thought it was me? Yeah, you should just tell that story. Yeah, so um, Jesse's wife, Jen, sent a picture to Ashley and I on our phones. That was a picture of like, it was like a running group or something, right? Right. And so, so it's this running group. So everybody is like in running gear and, and everybody's lined up and there's Jesse in the background and you were like jumping in the air. Right. And, and Ashley looked at me and goes, how did you get in this picture of Jen's running group? <laughs> and I went, Ashley, that's your brother. <laughs> So what's, what's great about this is that your wife didn't think, well, there's a disconnect here. Like this is Jen and this is a running group. And I'm not sure that Tony would be involved in the running group, but she just went straight to like, why were you there? Yeah. Yeah. She was really confused about it. And I was like, I cannot believe that you just mistook your brother for me. But we, I mean, we do have a striking resemblance for not being related to each other genetically. Right. It, I mean, if by that you mean we're both like super handsome. Well, yeah, that's what I meant. <laughs> that this happens a lot though, because now, so soup, we're obviously brothers in law, we're brothers in Christ, but there have been a couple of times where people have interacted with us online and they actually think that we're also blood brothers. Either that's I don't know true. if that's just because of how we converse with one another or if they've seen the pictures, but I'll take it. Yeah. I also, especially when Ashley and I were first dating, I, it, I don't get it as often as I used to, but people will see pictures of 
um, your dad and think that it's my biological dad or the, there was no end of comments to how much I look like dad. And it's funny because there was actually a point where Ashley played your mom in a skit and I played your dad in the <laughs> skit, which was not even a little bit weird, even a little bit. But um, yes, we do look strikingly alike. Yeah, this is how we do it. We're that close. Yeah. So I have one more recommendation that's a little bit self-serving, and maybe this is a sneak peek of some stuff that we might be working on for the future. But we have launched our second Reform Brotherhood podcast. So now we are no longer just the Reform Brotherhood podcast, but there's also a new show that's called The Reform Standard, which, long story, is actually the podcast that I did before this podcast and now I've relaunched it, but you can find it uh, anywhere on iTunes. If you just type in the reform standard, you'll find it. Um, or if you go to standard.reformbrotherhood.com, uh, it's hosted on the same domain there. And it's basically like five or 10 minute um, reflections on right now. I'm going through the Westminster larger catechism. Um, I've got a couple episodes coming out on the Nicene creed, um, but it's, it's short quick hits on confessional and creedal statements. Um, so I've got like 180 left in the Westminster Larger Catechism, and then I'll move on to something else. So I'm not in any risk of running out of stuff. But I would love it if people would check out the show. Um, I've had really great feedback. People have said that it's been beneficial to them. Um, people telling me like they listen to it with their kids, which is kind of uh, intimidating and humbling. But um, I love making podcasts, so I'm really hoping to like continue to make more content. But I would be really honored if you check it out. So it's the Reform Standard. Uh, you can search for it at any major podcast app um, or on iTunes, Google Play. It, it's all over the place. Uh, you can find it on YouTube, which is awesome, or um, Stitcher. I don't think it's on Spotify yet. Spotify is really picky about what they accept. Yeah, you got to get that on Spotify. That's weird. They won't accept a lot of stuff. They're super particular. Spin that Spotify. That's okay. But uh, check it out, Reform Standard. Uh, you can find it at standard.reformbrotherhood.com. And it really is a great little cast. I like to think of it as like a confessional nugget for your day. Mm-hmm. I also had an idea for a podcast called Coffee Break Dogmatics. And uh, the tagline was going to be, Quick theology hits to keep you regular. <laughs> wait, wait. <laughs> How is that not more like something with X lax? I don't know. Or like the fiber theology or something like that. Well, yeah, but like coffee keeping you regular. I don't know. We'll, we'll see. We'll play with it a little bit. But that yeah. one takes a lot more work than I have time to do right now. But that's a that's another idea that I have. So if you if you want to be a podcaster and you'd be interested in in being the talent for that show, let me know and we'll make it happen. But um, I just would love to keep making podcasts that that people enjoy. And, and this is sort of an interesting, unique way to edify the church in a way that's it's not a teaching ministry. We're we're not under any. Uh, any delusions that this is somehow a ministry, but it is a way for us right. to share what God is doing in our lives and to share the the knowledge and study that he's blessed us with, um, with other people in a way that's not, um, it's not intimidating. It's easy to appropriate. It's easy to approach. So um, we love it and we can only do it because people have supported us. So um, we really just appreciate that. Right on. So if you have a passion for keeping people regular, theologically speaking, Come find us. Oh, yeah. 
That's probably as good an intro as we've ever done. I know. To a question cast. I know. So let's get those questions. Let's do it. Jesse, what, why don't you play our first question? Hello, my name is, is Ben. Uh, I am from outside of North America. A while ago, I remember you asking uh, for some more of your not North American uh, brotherhood to to pitch in and get their voices heard. And here I am. I am from Northern Ireland and I currently live in England. Uh, I am sitting in my car. Uh, it's a lovely Lord's Day. I am just home from morning worship. Um, and I finished listening to your podcast on uh, Reformation worship. I listened to it on the, on the drive to and fro church. Uh, and part of it uh, struck a chord with me. Uh, about the excuses that we make for uh, not going to church. And uh, so my wife is is a paramedic, and obviously there is um, some grounds there for uh, such shift workers as herself to to very often not get a Sunday. So when she does get a Sunday, we're very excited. Um, But this Sunday, we were faced with a slightly more difficult situation where technically... She probably could have made it, but she chose to sleep for shift instead of um, instead of uh, going to church. And actually, I didn't get home until it's two o'clock now, and she needed to be asleep at twelve. But uh, I'm just wondering if you guys have any thoughts on that and how that fits in with the fact that all work is is giving glory to God and is for worship. Uh, Yeah. Um, Thank you very much. Brother Ben, all the way from across the pond, at least from us. Yes. I'm excited about that. We got some of the international brotherhood represented today. I know this is, this is the international brotherhood question cast. And I like this question because it really just strikes to the heart. And I appreciate Ben just being very candid about the situation he describes. But if I were to encapsulate what he's asking, I think what we need to talk about is what does the Lord's Day require of Christians? And when is a Christian permitted an absence from gathered worship? What say you? So I'm going to, um, this is a little bit of a longer section to read, but I'm going to read several questions here out of the Westminster uh, larger catechism, because I think it's important, you know, all sorts of Christians have different opinions on Sunday. Is is Sunday the day, or can you move it to Saturday if it's convenient? You know, right. if you go on Sunday morning, is the rest of the day yours? There's all these questions. So I'm just going to read, um, It's quest- starting with question 115 of the Westminster Larger Catechism. Um, question 115, what is the fourth commandment? Answer, the fourth commandment is, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within their gates. For six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that's in them, and rested on the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. 
Question 116. What is required in the fourth commandment? The fourth commandment requireth of all men the sanctifying or keeping holy to God such times as he hath appointed in his word, expressly one whole day and seven, which was the seventh from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ, and the first day of the week ever since. And so to continue to the end of the world, which is the Christian Sabbath and the New Testament called the Lord's Day. So I'm going to pause right there and just comment on that a little bit. So what, what question 116 is saying is that the fourth commandment, which is remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy, etc., requires us to set apart one day in seven. And then it goes on a little bit to um, explain that this one day under the old covenant dispensation, the old covenant administration was the, the seventh day. And then since the resurrection of Christ, this one in seven day that we're to set aside is now the first day of the week, which the New Testament calls the Lord's Day. And so from a a Reformed confessional perspective, um, it's perfectly fine to gather and worship on other days, Um, especially if you are a person who has a job, which we'll get into certain kinds of jobs are sort of exempt from um, the prohibition of ordinary labor on the Lord's day. Um, right. and, and a paramedic is one of those. It's a work of necessity. You can't just, we can't just stop having medical services. Um, and so, so it's good for Christians who can't meet on the Lord's day for lawful reasons to meet on other days, or even Christians who can meet to also meet on other days. But those other days do not and cannot replace the Lord's day. And, and the reason for that, from my perspective, um, and I'll be interested to hear your thoughts on that, I would guess they're probably not all that different, is that the, the reason that we meet on the seventh day is to express in part what we're worshiping for. Why, why we worship um, is expressed in the fact that we worship on the seventh day. And the key to understanding that is looking at the fact that it used to be the, the, the first day or the, the seventh day that we worship. Let me slow down. My brain is going too fast. We gather and worship on the first day of the week to reflect the purpose for our worship. And that's that's keyed into that based on the fact that that changed at the resurrection of Christ and what the seventh day worship used to represent. So in in the, uh, the two givings of the Ten Commandments, we have one in Exodus, one in Deuteronomy. Um, in the Exodus account, the uh, seventh day Sabbath is rooted in the fact that God completed his creation and entered into his rest on the seventh day. So right that on. entering into his rest is important. So they worshiped on the seventh day because it represented God entering into his Sabbath rest, his eternal rest, which the Israelites had not yet entered into and would not enter into. Even when they entered the land, you know, Hebrews says if Joshua had given them uh, rest, they would no longer have needed to to continue to seek it. Right In Deuteronomy, the same commandment is rooted in the fact that they were once slaves in Egypt and now they no longer are slaves. Therefore, they're commanded to rest. So both of these uh, seventh-day celebrations point to typological realities that find their fulfillment in Christ. They both point towards the fact that the Israelites had not yet entered their rest. Even though they had been delivered from Egypt, they are to rest in order to anticipate the rest that is to come. 
Now we enter, or we worship on the first day of the week because we are looking at the fact that Jesus Christ entered into his Sabbath rest on the first day of the week on the resurrection and that we someday will enter into that very same Sabbath rest, which the Lord entered into on the first day. So we worship on the first day pointing to that typological reality. So, so it's important for us to know, no matter what else we say about the Lord's day, because there's, there is a, a fairly wide range of disagreement in the reform camp about what exactly is allowed, what's not allowed, what exactly is required, what's not required. Mm-hmm. Um, the Westminster tradition tends to be a little more restrictive in some ways than some of the other reform traditions. But the one thing that we all agree on is that the Lord's day Sunday, the set, the first day of the week is significant because of the fact that the Lord entered his rest in the resurrection on this on the first day of the week. So we too must worship. We must gather as the saints on the first day of the week. Right on. I agree with that. Let me add to that. Just some thoughts specifically about gathered worship as it relates to Ben's question. I think I believe we really kind of have to pose the right questions with respect to gathered worship. So we develop a proper frame. Yeah. And we really shouldn't begin by asking whether or not we enjoy worship or find it a profitable use of time, but we really should ask, what is it that God expects of us? Because some events require no preparation and they're not impacted by the lack of preparation, but gathered worship is not such an event. So I think the more volatile our schedules are, the better we need to do at making commitments ahead of time. And so I think some of the problem is just in my own life with the excuses that creep in. If I do not make the commitment far in advance and then prepare for the event of the Lord's day, then what's going to happen is there's a greater probability that the excuse will override the desire in the natural person to want to be in the Lord's house on that day. Right. So I think what we need to do is understand that when we make like a vow or a promise or commitment, all that is, is that's just a decision made ahead of time. And once we do that, if we can look ahead at our schedules, even when we know that we have legitimate jobs that will take us away from the gathering of worship on the Lord's Day at times, we the best thing we can do is to, is to plan forward. So that way we're in the best possible space right. to make a commitment far in advance and to make it a priority. And I think everything that you just said for me emphasized what a priority it should be. So we should do everything physically possible to be in the gathered worship together when we're able to do that. Right. And part of what's been helpful for me in really solidifying the importance of that, like you said, is that public worship, we really should see kind of what you said as a summary as like a covenant renewal ceremony. So like the imperative to gather is from God. It's not from us. So whenever we gather for word and sacrament, it's because we have been summoned. I mean, of course, that's what church means. Like Ecclesia is the called out. So it's not like it's a voluntary society of those who are coming together regularly with some kind of chief concern to share or to build community or enjoy fellowship. Like it's not a country club. But it's a society of those who have been chosen, redeemed, called, justified, and are being sanctified until we will finally be glorified in heaven. Yeah. So we gather on each Lord's Day, not merely out of like a habit or social custom, but because God has chosen that day as a foretaste of this everlasting Sabbath day, which you just spoke of, that will be enjoyed fully at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Yeah. So that's why we gather. I mean, we're gathering to receive God's gifts. We're gathering to edify one another. So there is this extreme importance, and in some way it can't be replicated and it cannot be replaced. But we, sh- we should probably talk about that being said, because we, we place a really strong emphasis on it, on where tra- kind of traditionally there have been allowances, so to speak, for legitimate reasons not to be present with in corporate worship on the Lord's day. Yeah. Yeah. And this is why, you know, I've, I've said it enough times that 
people are going to get sick of me saying it. But the 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 catechism, the especially the Westminster, I mean, I'm not as familiar with the Heidelberg, but the Westminster Shorter and Larger Catechism really unfold, um, they unfold the body of doctrine in a really logical way. And so just like, you know, the the idea that we're to set apart the the Lord's day as a holy Sabbath unto the Lord, and that uh, attendance uh, in the gathered worship of the saints is not optional, the very next right. question is almost always, well, that certainly can't be a universal. There has to be exceptions. Exactly. So question 117 says, how is the Sabbath or the Lord's day to be sanctified? The answer is the Sabbath or Lord's day is to be sanctified by a holy resting all the day, not only from such works as are at all times sinful, but even from such worldly employments and recreations as are on other days lawful and making our delight to spend the whole time. And then there's a parenthetical here, except so much of it as is to be taken up in the works of necessity and mercy. And that's the end of the parenthetical in the public exercise of God's worship. And to that end, we are to prepare our hearts as with such foresight, diligence, moderation, to dispose and seasonably dispatch our worldly business that we may be more free and fit for the duties of the day. Now, we could get uh, into the nitty-gritty of what does it mean to cease from worldly employments and recreations? That's a different question. It's an important question. But I want to focus instead on this middle section here where it says we're to delight and spend the whole time except so much of it as is to be taken up in the works of necessity and mercy. So classically speaking, the Reformed have always recognized that um, what the what the fourth commandment is is saying here is that we are to devote our day to the Lord to to rest and worship, um, which may at times include works of mercy or charity. Um, right so on. if I decide to go and um, contribute my time to a Christian soup kitchen and share the gospel with people that I'm providing food to, that's not a violation of the Sabbath. Likewise, works of necessity would be things like um, paramedics, doctors. Um, I'm a supervisor in a, in a, I'm an administrative supervisor in a hospital. So there may be times that I get called in to deal with something that happens on a Sunday in order that I might be able to keep the, keep the clinic working in order to continue to care for people's health. So particularly jobs that are revolving around like healthcare, um, law enforcement, other public safety or security things, the military, those kinds of things. And then, of course, the work that a pastor does on the Lord's Day is built into the Sabbath. So right. it's it's not quite the same as a work of necessity or mercy, but the, the ministry of the Lord is built into the Sabbath as, as part of what is required. Um, so you would, could consider a work of necessity. So um, our caller's wife, who uh, works as a paramedic and cannot attend work due to her schedule, that's not a violation of the Sabbath in any sense of the word. Um, you know, there's some question as to what kinds of jobs Christians should take and whether or not they should take jobs that take them away. And at least the reform tradition has said, no, that's not necessary, right? If, if God has called you into an ordinary vocation of being a soldier or a, or a, a doctor or a firefighter, it's okay for you to accept that vocation. Um, where it gets a little blurry, and I think I've referenced this on this show, is I occasionally run into people who are like overroad truckers or something like that. Um, which, yeah, if we just shut down trucking in the country, um, 
every Lord's Day, if we just said nobody drives trucks on Sundays, the whole economy would screech to a halt. So that's not really realistic. Um, you could say the same thing as like someone who works for a power plant or is right. a network administrator for like a major service of some sort. Um, those kinds of things have sort of become works of necessity in our culture. I'm not convinced that Christians necessarily need to or should pursue those careers that are not within the classic understanding of works of necessity, right? Like, you know, the power plant, yes, if we just shut it down on Sundays, there'd be problems, but it's not really a work of necessity in the sense that the the catechism is getting at here. Right. In other words, so, we could survive without it in theory. Right. We as a culture could survive. Most likely nobody's going to die if there's no electricity for a little while. So it's it's one of those things that in our culture, it's necess- the service is necessary. So I wouldn't fault a Christian for going into that line of work, um, especially if if they didn't anticipate working on Sundays on a regular business and they had to occasionally work on a Sunday. Um, I wouldn't fault them for that. I wouldn't consider it a sin. But I do have some concerns about Christians who enter into careers that don't fall under that classic um, definition of necessity or, or mercy. Right. Um, that voluntarily enter into those. And most of the time, the, for whatever reason, I don't know why, but the, the common one I run into is over-the-road truckers. And and it's this weird thing where they don't feel like they have the ability to get another job. Um, and it usually boils down to, I can't find another job that pays as well as this. But it's, it's constantly taking them away from Lord's Day worship. And a lot of times these conversations come up because someone expresses they're struggling in their faith. They feel disconnected from their community. And I'm like, well, of course you do. You're never in church on Sunday. So right. that that middle part of, of our caller's question, um, his wife is absolutely not sinning by by working as a paramedic on the Lord's Day. Even, even if that meant for the rest of her life, she never attended Lord's Day worship with the people of God. If she was called into that, that is a lawful vocation and it's a lawful vocation on the Lord's Day. Now, that doesn't mean she shouldn't do everything she can to try to change her schedule, to work it out so she can, a rotation. That's sure. not always possible. But even if the hypothetical situation happens where she's never able to attend the Lord's Day worship again, um, this is a work of necessity. So it's it's exempt is not the right word, but it's included in the concept that this is not a violation of the, the Lord's Day uh, principle. And that's the tender point, I think, that sometimes causes offense is where do we say you need to be convicted about the times when you allow work to kind of creep in and give you what you think is a legitimate excuse right. to miss being with the Lord's people versus an actual act of necessity. And I think right. that is the tension point where we ought to just be honest with ourselves about what we really are putting forward as a priority. Yeah. And I think before we can even get to the place where we say we are going to make sure that we're, we're always attending, we need to understand why it's so important. So just let me add like a little bit of like Baptist spice to this like Sabbath jambalaya that we're Let's cooking. So this is from London, the London Baptist Confession, chapter 22. And Article 7 defines basically what the Lord's Day is. But I love Article 8 because, again, one of the things I love talking about this stuff with you is we bring in like the catechisms and the creeds and the confessions. It's almost like we can take a look at any single doctrinal point or theological issue and as like a jewel, hold it up in our hands and kind of turn it over and look at it from all these different angles by looking at all these wonderful things that have been written about it. And so Article 8 of Chapter 22 speaks of the Sabbath in this way. The Sabbath is then kept holy unto the Lord when men, after a due preparing of their hearts and ordering their common affairs aforehand, do not only observe and holy rest all day from their own works and words and thoughts about their worldly employment and recreations, 
but are also taken up the whole time in the public and private exercises of his worship and the duties of necessity and mercy. Yeah. And I love this because it it's very practical. It just says you need to order your affairs. So part of the Sabbath isn't just like, well, how you spend that 24 hours on that day, but everything, in fact, you do up until that point to make sure that you are available both emotionally, physically, spiritually right. to be present on the Lord's day. And so that does and should include ordering our schedules just because like in our culture, we're super busy and sometimes we wear that as a badge of honor. That doesn't give us excuse to throw away the Sabbath. And, and right. by what, what I mean by that is to be unprepared. Like, I think there's a way to honor the Sabbath in an unworthy way, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like we think that we're actually honoring the Sabbath. We think that we're present, but we're not really. And that's a really hard truth to yeah. wrap our arms around and then to actually kind of sink into and embrace and move forward in. Yeah. So um, I'm going to read question 18 because I think it's important for our caller's um, particular situation. And I, I want to preface this by saying, Jesse and I are not your pastor. We're not your wife's pastor. Factually You're correct. not your wife's pastor. Factually but correct. question 118, I think, has some direct application to this situation. So it says, why is the charge of keeping a Sabbath more specially directed to governors of family and other superiors, or you might say authorities? And the answer is the charge of keeping the Sabbath is more specially directed to governors of family and other superiors because they are bound not only to keep it for themselves, but to see to it that it be observed by all those under their charge. And because they are prone oft times to hinder them by employments of their own. So um, the reason this is applicable is I um, I am not going to make a statement about um, – whether or not it is sinful for Ben's wife to sleep on Sunday, you know, because she had a late shift or something like that. Um, I, I do think, and this is a good general statement, being tired on a Sunday morning is not a legitimate reason not to go to church. Um, that said, though, question 118 basically says, if, if we're talking to Ben here, is that it's his responsibility to make sure that his wife, who is not in the same way as children might be, but is under his charge, it's his responsibility to work through this with his wife. So um, one of the things that happens with men in particular, it's a, a particular co- you know sort of uh, thing that happens to us as a result of the fall, is we tend towards passivity. We tend right. to not uh, to not live up to the responsibilities that we're given as leaders of our family and as leaders in society and leaders in the church. And so Ben, um, Ben needs to work through this with his wife. And maybe this is the first step and just getting, you know, just talking to other Christians about kind of like, here's the situation. What do I do about it? That's totally fine. But um, if he hasn't, I would encourage him to go to his pastor with his wife, not accusing her of anything, not being judgmental or anything like that, but just say, hey, I'm really concerned about this. Um, I want to make sure that we're talking to our pastor because in the same way also now that Ben is responsible for this, pastors are also fall under that charge of other superiors to ensure that those under their care, which would be their entire flock, are properly observing the Lord's day as well. Definitely. There's three things I take away from Ben's message. One, I would love to hang out with that brother because he sounds like a, a great guy. Yeah. Two, I could listen to his voicemails all day because he has that beautiful accent, even though I'm sure that he doesn't, he probably believes that we have accents. And three, it's clear that he does have a passion for the Lord right. and for being in corporate gathered worship on the Lord's day. So I'm right there with you. Like this is the part of, of something that we all have to work through, especially when we're in families. And that is how do we make sure that we are prioritizing 
the Lord's Day. And when circumstances dictate in a legitimate way that we cannot be there on the Lord's Day, what do we do then? And that's a real question for a lot of people. And it's a very difficult question because there are people in situations where that is their line of work and there's no other way around it. So I think there's just some wrestling that has to be done. And I think part of the way that we can start to parse all this out, all the nuances, all the complications of those kind of thinking on the decisions is to really understand the reasons that Christians gather in public worship. And I would say like we gather because the Lord commands us to gather together. He calls us together because our faith is going to be fueled by the hearing of God's word in person. There's the power of personal connection. I mean, when you, when you have a pastor and he is in front of you and you sense that he has prayed over this message and prayed over the people that he's communicating with, there's something that's special. I think the Holy Spirit uses even in things just like the visible reaction and eye contact and facial expressions. I think that's all part of what the Holy Spirit uses. And then spiritual fruit comes from hearing with others. There's this kind of combined sense of accountability and discipleship that is bringing this community together. So I, I'm sure most of our listeners would agree that there's no small number of reasons to be present in the, in the house of the Lord on the Lord's day with his people. But even with that said, man, is it sometimes hard to overcome yeah. the excuses, especially when your schedule is crazy. So I think this is a, a really a question about ordering, prioritizing, having good open conversations and growing in our maturity to try to understand what does the Lord require of us on the day that he has set aside the only day, as we've said, that it, the holiday that God has prescribed for us. Yeah. And, and maybe we'll close this question down with this last thought is, you know, simply getting your butt to a pew on Sunday morning is not necessarily observing the Lord's day. Right. So, um, you know, when I was in college, I spent a lot of late Saturday nights, usually studying, but, but sometimes just hanging out and chatting. Um, and then I, I would go to church and I would find a spot in the back and I would pull my hood up and I would fall asleep. Um, or, you know, when I was a little bit older and I wasn't doing that as much anymore, but I would sit and I'm playing my phone. So, so if you're going to sleep in church, just stay home because you're, you're profaning the Sabbath either way and you are distracting people, uh, if you sleep in church. So that's not to say like, there are sometimes people who that's not their intention, but if you know that you are going to go to church and you're going to phone it in and you're going to fall asleep or you're going to play on your phone or you're going to, you know, not pay attention to the sermon, you're profaning the Sabbath just as much as if you didn't go. And if that's convicting, then good. It's supposed to be convicting because the, the Lord's day is an important, significant moment in the week of a Christian. It's, it's not just, um, the same thing you do in your private devotions with other people around, right? We've Amen. talked about that. That's kind of Mike Horton's big thing. Um, so what I, I'm growing more and more convinced and more and more convicted of the centrality and the significance of the Lord's day, um, such that, you know, like when we were on vacation last time, we went to church together. Right. So like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, um, look down on the rest of our family who didn't join us. That's their decision for myself. Um, I did not feel comfortable in that situation when I had every ability to go and attend corporate worship and not disrupt, um, my family to do it. Um, I, I felt like we, I had to. Um, and so like similar things happen, you know, Ashley is employed by the church here and on, on a Lord's day where she is on vacation, where she has one of her two Sundays a year that she's not required to be, um, participating in the worship service. Um, we usually find another church in the area that we can visit we can go to. Um, and it's just a conviction that I have. And this is, this is where I think, um, we, we can find a little bit of common ground and maybe a little bit of, 
um, flexibility and maybe a little bit of Christian charity is that sometimes we look at another Christian who's made a different decision about the Lord's day. Maybe it's a decision about, um, they decided to watch a movie that afternoon. There's a lot of people in the Westminster and the London Baptist uh, tradition that would say that that is worldly recreation and it's forbidden on the Lord's day. Um, I don't necessarily share that conviction to the same extent as that. Um, But that's a situation where we need to look at that and recognize that we are not responsible for judging the Lord's servants, right? Where it's not our job to stand over other Christians in judgment when we're talking about areas of wisdom and discernment. Now, that doesn't mean that it's okay to profane the Lord's day, but not everybody agrees on what it is that profaning the Lord's day is. And where I think this is applicable to this question is, you know, I don't know all the context, but sometimes someone would look at a person who worked all night, um, who had a late shift, you know, a paramedic who worked overnight or a police officer who worked overnight and would look down on them in judgment because they did not drag themselves out of bed on the Lord's day in the morning to come to the church. But sometimes what we don't recognize is that they maybe have another shift they have to go to. And if they don't sleep correctly, they're right. not going to be able to do that safely. You know, we had a, I mean, you know, you know who I'm talking about. We had a woman in our church who was an overnight nurse. And so she would frequently um, not be in church on Sunday even though I know she wanted to, her heart was always to be here, but she had to make the decision between coming home and going to sleep and then going back for another shift on Sunday afternoon or Sunday evening. And she had to be able to go back and be well rested enough in order to safely take care of patients in a surgical recovery unit. So she had to make that decision. And I I think she made the right decision. There are probably some Christians who would look at her and go, well, you, you just need to drink a little bit more coffee and deal with it. And I I don't think that's the right approach. So I think in in all things as Christians, we, we owe it to each other, right? Paul says that the, the only debt we should have to people is love, right? We should love each other. We should have a debt of love to our Christian brothers and sisters. And that means extending the benefit of the doubt and talking to them if you have concerns rather than just like standing in judgment over them. You know, but the irony is, I can't think of anybody, unbeliever or Christian, who, if they were going into the hospital or their loved one was, wouldn't want a nurse that was fully well-rested and capable right. of providing like the highest level of care. Right. So that's what's ironic about that is mm-hmm. you're absolutely right. We need to be careful about how we judge. And yet, at, I can say, by way of personal testimony, that any sacrifice, and most of these have been small, that I've made to make sure that I can attend gathered worship on the Lord's day has always far exceeded the cost. And a good example is what you just said. So when we went to that, to church, to service together, uh, on, on uh, vacation, you know, some would say like, well, that doesn't sound very restful. Like you, you, it's, it's okay to be away. And I can understand that argument. And yet, as you know, I mean, I'll just be totally honest. When we went to that service, like I was moved to tears at that service. Like it, it was so filling to me and I didn't expect it to be so satisfying. That was far more restful than relaxing during those couple of hours could ever have been outside of being with God's people. And these, this was the family of God that wasn't, you know, my immediate family. This was extended in the sense I didn't even know these people. Yeah. And yet the Lord so powerfully ministered to me in their presence. And it wasn't just the fact that the sermon was, you know, particularly great or there was a really wonderful order. It was the fact of being with God's people, receiving this ordinary means of grace that was fed my soul in an extraordinary kind of way. So at the same time, it's always worth the sacrifice. So that's, there's the tension. I hope that's helpful to Ben. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So the summary is touch base with your pastor, bring your wife with you, make sure you're all on the same page. 
uh, and make sure you move forward with a clean conscience. If you can move forward with a clean conscience and your pastor has worked through the biblical issues with you, then you shouldn't really uh, allow anyone else to look down on that decision that you've made if you're making it according to biblical principles. Right on. All right, next question. We just took 41 minutes to say what I just (laughs) said in like like 10 seconds. No one has ever accused us of being brief on this podcast. That's true. All right, let's hit the next one. Hi, guys. Uh, This message is from Marshall. I'm from Slafford, Ontario, Canada. I've been listening to the podcast for a couple months now, and I've just been really uh, been blessed by um, some of the things you guys have talked about. It's really helped me kind of in my development uh, and understanding of Reformed theology and, and some other things. And uh, the question I've got for you guys is kind of more of a practical um, application type question. I attend a church, a Baptist church uh, up here, that is uh, certainly evangelical. Um, as far as whether or not it's Reformed, it probably varies <laughs> person to person. I think most people are Calvinistic in their soteriology, I think, uh, to a degree. Uh, but when it comes to things like, you know, covenant theology and, and you know, even uh, being a Baptist church, but even like things like the London Baptist Confession and people um, aren't really aware of it. And I've been feeling convicted um, to kind of um, connect with people in the church and uh, maybe, you know, even get some opportunities to, to try and have some conversations around these topics uh, in the hopes that um, things will um, kind of materialize uh, when it comes to, you know, reform thinking uh, in my local church. I'm just wondering if you guys have any insight on, on what is a healthy um, way to kind of go about that. I don't want to come across as anything pushy or, or trying to, um, you know, uh, undermine uh, authority of the elders or anything like that, but I just really feel that, um, you know, this reformed uh, teaching you know, in our, our particular Baptist roots really need to kind of come to the forefront. So if you guys give me some uh, insight and some advice on, on how to kind of approach that in a church that's not very reformed, uh, that'd be great. Yeah, appreciate it. Thanks. Bye. So Marshall from the Great White North asks, a, I think, what is a brilliant question. By the way, the only things I really know about Canada are Royal Mounties, and I think they drink milk from a bag. They also love hockey. Well, that, yeah, that's hockey too. Have, are you familiar with the milk from a bag thing? Yeah, I, I think that's weird. a legit thing. It is a it is a legit thing, but it's also weird. Also, I have a Canadian pastor friend, and maybe only the Canadians will appreciate what I'm about to say. Nanaimo bars. Look have, it up. I have no idea so, what that is. What I think. Well, the reason why I think this is a really phenomenal question is because this is probably more the common experience of a lot of people who are hearing our voices right now, uh, rather than the exception. And this is certainly my experience. So if I were to summarize this question that Marshall asked, it's this, what is a healthy, fruitful way to promote reformed theological conversation within a church that is not explicitly reformed? Yeah. So um, this was my experience when I first came into reformed convictions. um, And to a much lesser extent is sometimes my experience now as well. So, you know, we've remarked in the past, both of us go to um, churches that are not necessarily confessional churches. Um, my church is is definitely closer to a confessional context than uh, yours is from what I experience. Um, True. But the church that I go to doesn't 
doesn't subscribe to a confession or anything like that. And so what I found is in the past um, is really fruitful is kind of a twofold approach, right? As, as reformed Christians, as Protestants, we should always be going back to the Bible. And if, if we are correct that our reformed convictions are the best summary of the biblical data, then we should be able to go to the Bible and, and lead the conversations and come away from those conversations, having expressed reformed convictions exegetically and theologically. So I think for me, that was always the best way to go about it. And I, I have, you kind of have to do it a little bit stealthy sometimes, right? If every time a question about election or predestination comes up, you're like, well, let me go ahead and turn to Romans nine. <laughs> um, if that's your go-to verse, right. that's fine. But if that's the only verse, you know how to prove election from then pretty quick, those questions stop coming up because people get sick of hearing the same exposition of Romans 9 and the same counter arguments to Romans 9. So sometimes yeah. you have to go to other passages and it requires you to be able to prove, and this is just a good practice anyways, it forces you to be able to prove your theology from multiple disparate places in the scripture. Um, and then that's a very winsome way to do it is, you know, you're not being snotty. You're not, um, you're not trying to act like, you know, the Bible better, but you know, someone says, I just don't understand this limited atonement thing. How can you say that God doesn't love the not elect? Well, you can say, well, well, first of all, that's not exactly what I'm saying, but let's just go to the scripture, right? And you can go through the old Testament. You can show how the, the Passover was each lamb was a, was a propitiation or a, a typological propitiation for a particular number of people, such that if there was uh, two families that were small, they could use one lamb. So there's actually like a numerical correlation. You can go all the way through to Jesus saying, my sheep hear my voice, and you don't hear my voice because you're not my sheep. So there's, there's a progression through scripture. And if you go back to the scriptures in those conversations, it goes a long way to sort of a winsome way to, to cultivate a reformed and reforming theological conversation. There is definitely a sense in which you kind of have to be clandestine, almost like reformed theological ninja style, like repelling off the building. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't take that to the extreme in the sense that you try to put forward like an, an ulterior agenda, but I like that Marshall is trying to seek opportunities to engage in mutual growth and edification. Yes. And I have at least one suggestion that's two words that is increasingly come to answer a lot of these types of questions for me, at least. And those two words are book club. Yes. <laughs> so... So here's one practical thing I'd recommend is find maybe a couple of people, maybe some couples uh, that you might invite to read a book with you. And that might have uh, some reform theological underpinnings. And I only say underpinnings only because like we would believe that systematically reform theology is, of course, the best and most coherent expression of all the biblical data, as you said. So that's not a compromise to just say, I want to read a good book with some people and talk about it. And pick a book that you haven't read. So it's it's yeah. a genuine invitation to somebody to say, I want to read this book. I'm wondering if you read it with me and we should just get together every week over yeah. breakfast or lunch and coffee and talk about it. And I would commend one book in particular as a great starting point. And that is this book by Ian Hamilton called The Gospel Shaped Life. And you've read this, right, Tony? I have not. Oh man, this is so good. So the reason I'm recommending this is because it's 192 pages but it's 43 chapters, which means there's just these like little tiny chapters and each one of them brings together first, like this, the theological and the practical. And it often starts with the practical and explains why this is theologically sound based on the Bible. So some of the, like the sample chapters, some of the titles are what is a Christian gospel foundations or reasons why you should not believe the gospel and unbelief or the covenant of redemption, God's eternal roots. Or one of my favorites is 
the grace of election, what the gospel looks like. So you can see like even that last chapter, it's bringing this like heavy, wonderful, beautiful theology, but it's pairing it with, well, this is what the gospel life looks like. And so this is a great book to read with a group or a good friend and just start having some wonderful conversation. It's not threatening. It's inviting. And I think because he has a passion for connecting with people, the book club is one of the best places to do that because it can, you can have like these kind of wonderful safe conversations because you can talk about the author and what he or her is saying, she is saying, as opposed to kind of getting in a place where having an argument theologically with somebody, this is just a place to have wonderful dialogue. So the book club is amazing. I have a book club with my father that I do regularly. I think you and I, we should, we need to do a book club at some point. We should maybe do a book club with our podcast. Yeah, I think we talked about that. I would love to do that because the book club has just been so powerful in, yeah. in my life. So I would say look to form a little bit of an informal book club. Continue to practice hospitality. I mean, just invite people over into your home, have conversation. And I'm sure that that conversation eventually is going to spark and move into theological matters. Yeah. Um, one of the things I can give by way of personal testimony again to that effect is, um, I mean, Tony, you know this, but most, most people listening don't. And that is that my wife underwent some pretty serious surgery over the last month and some of it was unexpected and some of it was very traumatic. And I was explaining to somebody recently who was asking me about it, that there were some times, there were some dire moments in the hospital when things were escalating quickly and they were getting very dramatic and, and pretty awful. And I was really crying out to God in prayer. And it was one of those moments where I felt as if my prayers were just coming back to me off the ceiling. And I realized in that moment that though I knew in my head that I ought to trust God, that I ought to put my full weight and all my faith in him for what was about to happen, I couldn't do it. And I tried to manufacture it. I really tried to manufacture from my mind into my heart enough faith to say, God, you are still in control of all this. And what ended up happening is my prayers very quickly evolved into just crying out to God and saying, would you give me faith? As I was explaining this to somebody, I was really confirming what the scriptures tell us, that faith must first come from God. And I experienced that in my real life by way of just them talking to me about this, this circumstance that had occurred. And I was able really to kind of bring in this, I mean, to us, we would say, well, that's very reformed. Uh, to, but it's also just what the Bible describes right. and what I was very much experiencing. Yeah. And so it was easy for me to kind of just talk because somebody was very interested in what had happened and they were willing to listen. It, you know, it was like having this old pair or this, I guess, maybe brand new pair of really nice work boots in the closet that you knew were there, you knew were made for work, but until you put them on, they were kind of hard on the feet. It was hard to stand in that truth. And that's yeah. what I was trying to explain faith was like and how it confirmed everything that the Bible said about where faith comes from. So I think the more that we can just be hospitable to people and not be afraid to express our theology by way of explaining what happens in our lives and how it's consistent with what the Bible says, and maybe sometimes at least initially avoiding labels because those can be pejorative, all that stuff I found to be a wonderful way to just talk about solid theology and the Lord, at least in my life and in the various groups of which I have a pleasure to be a part of, he has used that to bear much fruit, not only just for them, I think, in terms of just having robust conversation, but oftentimes I think, well, here I am trying to reform, so to speak, from within, and yet God is using that to reform me yeah. and to, to really grow more fruit in my life. Yeah. So I just affirm Marshall's really prerogative to keep reaching out, keep seeking opportunities 
So continue to just invite people into your life and to speak with them and to listen to them and ask good questions. Yeah. Another uh, one-two punch uh, book club that works wonders that I think is just a great option is a combination of the book um, Ordinary by Michael Horton, oh, um, so good. which is a, just a great book for every Christian uh, to read because most of our most of our callings are completely ordinary and it just helps ground your life in a more realistic vision of, of the Christian calling. But then uh, combine that with Core Christianity, also by Michael Horton. And what it does is it sort of introduces uh, Ordinary is not a overly theological book. There is a section in the middle that's that's kind of theological in the sense that are talking about like ordinary vocation and baptism and family um, and how all that works. But it presents a distinctly reformed doctrine of vocation that is very appealing and winsome. And then once you've kind of got them hooked on the the Horton drug, then you you hit them with core Christianity, which is also um, not explicitly reformed, but he's just teaching the Bible. And so he's coming, he's doing that same kind of thing I was talking about earlier, where you just bring the biblical testimony to bear on the question. And the answer is a reformed answer, but that's because reformed is just a synonym for biblical as far as we understand it. <laughs> right um, on. And so the other thing that I, I was saying to that effect or thinking to that effect is memorize the shorter catechism. Because what happens is you have these questions and you're struggling to explain them in a winsome, reformed, correct way. But somebody already did that and they did it in a way that's simple. So something as straightforward as someone saying like, well, what does the Bible really teach? Well, now that I've memorized the Westminster Shorter Catechism or most of it, um, I'm just going to instinctively say, well, the Bible principally teaches what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of him. Like it's second nature now. Or someone says, well, what is sin? I'll say, well, sin is any want of conformity or transgression of God's law. So like those answers start to just sort of flow out of your mouth. And here's the beauty of it is those are really good answers. They're really good answers. They're biblically sound. They're straightforward, right? When someone asks me, well, what is sanctification? Rather than hemming and hawing, trying to explain what sanctification is, I'm going to say sanctification is the work of God's uh, work, free work of God's grace, whereby he renews us after the image of God and enables us to live unto righteousness and die unto sin. Like that's, that's the right answer. It's also straightforward. And so as you memorize the catechism, it just becomes part of your natural vocabulary. You start to give answers that make sense, that are coherent. And people like things that are coherent. They like things that work. So when you start to give answers like that, it naturally gravitates people to understand things and understand theology. And here's the, here's the crazy mind shift that we all have to understand is the way that we speak is more often shaping of the way we think rather than shaped by the way we think. There's a reason why Paul said to Timothy, follow the pattern of sound words rather than saying, follow the pattern of sound thinking. Because these, these confessions and creeds that have been handed down to us, they structure the way we think. They give us a framework to look at not just the world, but at our theology and God. And when we, when we start to live that framework out and explain that framework out, it's winsome because of its coherence. It's, it's, we said it, was it last week or the week before? It's aesthetically pleasing. Good theology is beautiful. And so that kind of beauty gravitates people towards it. So I think those three kinds of steps, I think, are a really good way to sort of start those conversations. Um, it's also a great way to just reinforce your own thinking on the matter as well. And you've all just been catechized. You're welcome. (laughs)
Another yeah, great way can, is yeah, the Reformed an, Standard. Reformed Standard Catechism. Yeah. Yes, exactly. See, I was trying to lead into that. <laughs> oh, man. Did I cut you off? Were you really going to say that? Yeah, I was really going to say that. the same way. That's okay. I love it. Yeah, so I, all those things are great, Marshall. Continue to participate in the ministry in your church. And whether that be informal by way of just your example, or I like Tony's idea. Tony, that was great of being prepared, always prepared. There's something to be said for like what we can do to be prepared to be a ministry and edification to others, which is part of what the church does, especially on the Lord's Day. So it's all connected. Yeah. But uh, as you're able to participate in formal leadership, or even if there's a kind of more formal leadership that you want to take at your church by way of vetting through the elders, whether that's leading public prayer, leading a small group, offering to mentor teens. I think all those things are wonderful ways to kind of bring about additional conversation. And I would say, get at it, brother. Like that's fantastic. And we should all be looking to that. end. even if we attend reformed confessional churches, this is the kind of thing that we should all be yeah. really endeavoring to take part in. Yeah. All right. Why don't we buzz through this last question before we bring it down for a landing? Here's the last one. Why, why do we have so many plane metaphors? I don't know. I, I can't get away from them now. It's like I can't yeah. escape them. We, we can't stop, won't stop. All right, here we go. Hi there. This is Alastair from England. Uh, and I just wanted to ask, considering all the, the work that has gone on through the episodes that you guys have been doing at the Reformed Brotherhood, uh, have you ever considered writing a book about maybe some of that content? Thank you. All right, Tony. So when are we going to write the book? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, to be, I mean, to be brutally honest, I'm very flattered uh, at this question, but I don't feel like we've said anything um, significant enough or novel enough to warrant <laughs> writing a true. book specifically about the content on our podcast. But That's I mean, true. it's not necessarily a bad idea. I mean, I think one of the things that you and I have really tried to tried to center our podcast around is um, doctrinal precision. Right? We want to be careful and technical. Uh, right. We want to be charitable and winsome. We're trying not to be right. tools and we're trying not to be um, unnecessarily divisive, but also practical. So we're trying to make theology something that the average person can get to and can get at and can be shaped by. And you can't be shaped by something you don't understand. So I don't know. Maybe those are distinctive enough things for us to write a book someday. Maybe. Well, let me rephrase it like this. If you were to write a book right now, like what's one thing on your heart or on your mind that you would like to write about? Um, I would really like to do a book uh, that sort of explores the current state of the Lordship Salvation controversy. Interesting. Um, because it, it's something that, you know, Lordship Salvation, that, that phrase has so many different meanings to so many different people. But the what I've noticed is that the... Um, I'll be extra charitable right now. The erroneous ways of speaking that John MacArthur um, demonstrated in particularly his first edition of um, the gospel according to Jesus, the, the erroneous ways of speaking have kind of infected um, the young reform restless movement through people like Todd Friol, um, Paul Washer, especially sort of that line of thinking, David Platt. Um, there are a lot of people in the reformed world who are moving towards a confessional position, but are still kind of in that like Calvinistic Baptist evangelical world that hasn't quite moved to like a fully mature reformed theology right. that are really, really influenced, probably completely unaware by this idea that repentance is a prerequisite to justification, which is more or less, um, more or less the issue with the, the Lordship salvation teaching of MacArthur in that first edition. So, 
Where it gets tricky, though, is that, you know, this was 30 years ago now that this really um, 20 years ago, 25 years ago now that this really came to a head and Mike Horton wrote the response and edited that edited volume, Christ the Lord. And um, there was a lot of adjustments to the printed things that John MacArthur printed, right? Uh, New editions of his books, corrections on his blog, different things that were updated to reflect um he took the criticism and he reflected on it and he recognized the language was problematic. However, particularly when he preaches, he still has this tendency to use those ways of thinking, those ways of speaking. And so I would really like to do some work on understanding what the current state of that is. Has MacArthur's theology changed? Has has his way of thinking and speaking really been corrected in light of the criticisms that he acknowledges were legit criticisms. Um, so I'd like to do some work on that. I'm actually in a, an MDiv program now with uh, North American Reform Seminary, and um, they do a like a capstone master's thesis. And I'm probably going to do my thesis on that. Um, but I would love to be able to write a book like that right now. What about you? What would you write? Yo, send me that manuscript. I will. You can proofread it for me. <laughs> Great. I look forward to that. So one of, one of the things I think would be interesting to write about, this is going to be totally different from yours. So I love this. D- totally different perspective here is. So let me ask you a question that there's no right or wrong answer to this question. It's just a matter of personal preference. Yeah, this will come to a point, I promise. But let, let's say like I was going to offer you like a fair game of chance, like we flip a coin, right? So if you get the answer wrong, you lose $20. Now, if for you, in order for you to like want to play this game, how much would you have to win for you to want to play it where if you get it wrong, you lose $20. So 50% of the time you, you'll lose 50% of the time you'll win. What would be like your price point on that? I feel like I'm not the right person to ask this because I read that book. Um, what's it called? It's about thinking like a computer, but um, I would say $20 because so you would, if I win, I break, like if I win, I win the same amount that I would lose. So it's like an even gamble. Although I'm, I don't ever gamble, but if I did, I would say twenty bucks, <laughs> twenty maybe twenty one. The the benefit would have to outweigh the risk, but but even right, just by yeah. a little bit. And that's and that's super common in the sense of that we want to get more than what we lose. And so that brings about something I've been thinking about for a long time that others have articulated far better than me. And that is that's something technically called like the failure of invariance, which is just a right. fancy way for saying the pain of losing a dollar is greater than the joy of gaining one. And so usually people chalk this under the subject of a cognitive bias. That is, we just make mistakes in how we reason. And that's a mistake because basically, like, it's, like you're saying, like either you should be able to win as much as you lose. Like 50% of the time, you're going to lose. 50% of the time, you're going to win. The probability of both together is zero dollars. Um, but what's interesting is most of the time people say, well, that, this is a flaw in the way that we approach things. We don't actually understand where value comes from. I mean, think about all the things that we value. Everything in our life, we're constantly putting prices on or weighing them in some way. And so I've been interested in value and how God creates us and where value comes from. Because what I find interesting is that all people really suffer from this idea called the endowment effect, which is when you own something, when it's in your possession, you value it more highly than when it was not. This is why like people tend to overprice homes when they go to sell them because it's like your home right. and it means something to you because you own it. And there've been like all kinds of studies, including like really crazy ones where they've gone into graduate classes and given people free mugs and then said, okay, what would you sell this mug to your classmate at? And they always sell it higher than what they would sell it at for the people who didn't actually own the mug. It's, it's just wild. And yet we find in the scriptures, Jesus saying really interesting things like 
do not store up treasures on earth, but store up treasures in heaven. So it's almost like Jesus is saying, you were created to value things and to actually place a large scale, writ large value on stuff. It's just that you're putting it in the wrong place. So it's not as if we have a cognitive bias in terms of value. It's that the bias is in where we place the value. And I would love to really flesh that out because this is one of those places where all these like behavioral psychologists, behavioral economists keep thinking they're breaking new ground by yeah. talking about these things. But really all they're doing is confirming in some ways the scriptures. I'd love to kind of bring those together and talk about like, here's where value comes from. This, this really enormous ephemeral concept of meaning and worth yeah. comes first from Christ. It's almost as if like the stock market itself proved that God, proves that God exists. I'd love to write a book on that. Yeah. Yeah. That would be an interesting book. You know, uh, this is the one mathematical thing that I know is in (laughs) a fair game of chance where there's a 50-50 probability, like you're proposing, and I lose $20 if I lose, but I win $21 if I win, Yes. the answer is you keep flipping that number until you are positive. That's correct. Because no matter what, on a 50-50, if it's truly 50-50, which obviously when you're talking about chance it isn't ever truly 50 50 but as long as you keep flipping it you will eventually come out positive and then you stop that might be on your first flip it might be on your seven billionth flip but as soon as you go positive you stop and then you win you won that game this has been an episode of reformed mathematics you're absolutely correct you're absolutely correct it's because i wrote read this book and i can't remember what it's called was it the um, one about like algorithms? Yeah, yeah, for... yeah, yeah. It's it's about algorithms. It actually was a really interesting book, so I'll have to find the title and suggest it. But there's a lot of things that I do differently. So they, they talk about um, – then we'll wrap it up because we're already past an hour. But they talk about how um, the best filing system is actually just a pile on your desk. Yes, yeah. And it's because the last thing that you um, – the last thing you touched is most likely to be the next thing you need. And so the stuff that you hardly ever use – you, it just gravitates to the bottom. So that way I actually put this into practice. This is, this is insane. So the worship, <laughs> the worship this. folder, right? The <laughs> folder with all the worship music. Right. I used to fastidiously go in it and re-alphabetize it and put the stuff back in alphabetical order, right? And what I realized is I was gaining absolutely nothing by doing that because all the time that it took me to go back in and find it, now what I do is I have a stack of music and when I'm done with the sheet music, I put it on top and then I flip through it until I find the one I want. And it doesn't work quite as well because we tend to do music that we haven't done recently. But if if I'm not looking for something and I haven't done it, you know, like a song we do once a year, well, that gravitates to the back. I don't have to flip past that every single time to find the music I'm looking for. I only have to flip through the music that we've done since the last time we did that song. Exactly. Right on. Right. And then all you do is... You've got this pile, you turn it on its side and put it in a drawer, and now you've got a filing cabinet. It's a perfect organization method. This is why you should always sort your computer files by last modified date. Yep, yep, exactly. I do that on my iPad. I, I drag the the app to the top left corner and everything shuffles over. So the, the ones that I use the most frequently are always at the top left, and the ones that I don't use are slide off to the side. And after they hit a certain point, I think it's like the second screen, I delete the app because I haven't used it in long enough to need it. I love it. See, here we are just changing people's lives. The reformed organizational cast. (laughs) I love it. Organization. Let me say, let me say one thing about all these questions. Thank you so much for everybody that leaves us a voicemail or sends us a voicemail. We also from time to time receive some wonderful 
email questions, those tend to be of the longer variety and those actually go towards shaping a lot of the episodes that we do. So please continue to send those. We receive them. We read everything. We listen to everything. So we really do love the brotherhood that God has put together. So keep all that good stuff coming. We do. And if you want to get your voice on the show, you can give us a call at 607-444-2767. B-R-O-S. And you can leave your voicemail, your question, your edification. Uh, we do also like to get iTunes reviews, uh, even if they're not five-star reviews. That doesn't do anything as far as helping people find us in the in the search. So all of those other podcasts that say it really helps people find us either don't know what they're talking about or are lying. It has zero to do with it. But just calling them out. Uh, we did get a pretty funny review that we'll read on the next one uh, that is just hilarious. Somebody does not love how we feel about Roman Catholicism. And <laughs> I care not one bit. So, uh, so if you want to leave us a review, we'd really appreciate it. Um, or if you want to email us, call us. We really love to get the feedback uh, and to hear your questions. So in closing, I started this, we started this conversation and I recommended the Rooted Apparel site because there's all kinds of great Reformed Brotherhood stuff. And it occurred to me while we were talking that we should add a bumper sticker. We see if we get a bumper sticker made based on something that you said during this cast. What's that? And that quote was, if it's conviction, good. That Tony was. Arsenal. <laughs> well, I think I said, if you're feeling convicted, good. Okay. Even better. If yeah. you're feeling convicted, good. There was that Tony one time Arsenal. that I said, do harder, try better. That's the Christian life. <laughs> I got a little bit of heat from that one. So, uh, yeah. That's great. Well, one time I almost sounded Roman Catholic. So that's I think true. That's true. this is the joy of podcasting. It no is. net. All right, Jesse. Well, this has been another successful question cast in the whole. And until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Uh,